My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the Holy Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The other day, I heard, I was listening to something and or reading something, I can't quite remember what it was, where someone was speaking about the writing about the crucifixion. And they said, and they used this phrase, that the crucifixion is an act of cosmic child abuse. It's become something of a theological cliche, but it has become standard for many theologians and Christian figures to refer to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings thereupon as cosmic child abuse. Which is interesting to me because the first word, cosmic, is actually correct. But the second two are not. Because when we look at the cross, it's not just the reconciliation of fallen humanity to God. But it's also the promise that the entire created order will be redeemed. As St. Paul reminds us in chapter 8 of Romans that he says all creation groans together for the revealing of the sons of God. So yes, in that sense it is cosmic. But child abuse, no. And this is a powerful rhetorical strategy because it links what happens to Jesus on the cross with one of the worst forms of violence a person can inflict upon another. In this view, God is seen as the worst of the worst who has to pour out his anger on someone. He's just so mad. He has to punish and so he punishes his only son. And the reason for this exegetical move is because in, in much of modern theology, God's wrath, number one, isn't a thing. God's wrath isn't a thing. It's very uncomfortable for us to talk about wrath, and the divine anger. And it comes up from time to time in our confession of sin. Indeed, it will come up again on Easter Sunday when we confess our sins before the Lord. We will say, we have broken your holy laws. We confess that we have, through disobedience, come under righteous judgment against us. But for some, God's wrath is not a thing. Because in their minds, there can be no compatibility with God's wrath and with God's love. In fact, I remember one time in an online gathering of clergy, I was asked, how can you believe in a God of love that would sentence people to eternal punishment, eternal death. And I said, well, 
Well, I didn't say it's in the Bible because that would have been cheeky and snarky. And I, as many of you know, I am definitely not cheeky or snarky at all. But I said, well, let's go back and it's testified of in the Old Testament. That God's justice, that God's justice is something that will be fulfilled. And when we read the Old Testament, we see people crying out constantly for God to, to vindicate them. For the injustice that they've felt, that they've experienced to be, to be met and to be repaid. But we are uncomfortable with that. The second thing is, for people like this, Jesus' crucifixion is about resistance to evil colonial powers, a.k.a. empire, and the killing of an innocent member of a marginalized community. So, number one, wrath isn't a thing. And number two, the crucifixion is just about the evil colonizers killing a person who is marginalized, an innocent marginalized person. And that's not completely wrong. There is a degree of truth to that. But that's not the primary takeaway from the crucifixion. Yes, Jesus is innocent. And yes, the Romans had taken control of Palestine. But we also have to remember, brothers and sisters, that when the Romans took over Palestine, they did so because they had made an alliance with them. And the third thing is that sin isn't something that has a hold over us in this point of view. It is not a spiritual power to be resisted. It is not something that God warns Cain, be careful, sin is crouching on your, at your doorway and it will master you if you do not master it. Sin is personified all the way back in Genesis. I believe it's in chapter 4. They don't see sin as a spiritual power to be resisted. They don't see sin as something that brings about death. Because when we look in the garden story, Jesus, uh, God says, if you eat of this, you will die. And that is the entrance into our world of mortality, of human mortality and death. And we are bound to it by sin. And sin is something that has affected us at the deepest part of our hearts. But for these who have this other point of view, sin isn't a spiritual power. It's merely a system of human oppression against other human beings. Keeping other people from having rights. That's the big sin. But all of this, brothers and sisters, these are all red herrings. They're smoke screens and a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what is happening on the cross. So what are we to make of the passages of scripture that refer to God's wrath or God's anger? There is a Jewish theologian named Abraham Heschel who, who can help us out a little bit here. He said that the anger of God is never a spontaneous outburst, but a reaction occasioned by the behavior of man. Indeed, it is the major task of the prophet 
to insist that the anger of God is not a blind explosive force, but rather voluntary and purposeful, motivated by concern for right and wrong. I think he has an important point here, and I think his part of what he said here is, is compatible with the Christian faith, and that God is not a bratty toddler who throws things when he doesn't get his way. Like my own daughter, she's doing this thing now when she climbs up on something we don't want her to climb up on. Or when she takes a step on something we don't want to take her to take a step of. When she takes her food and throws it off the table and I say no, or her mother says no, she throws herself on the ground and goes, ah, starts to cry. And stops and looks at us. And then starts to cry, ah. angry. That's not God. When we read about the wrath of God in Scripture, the anger of God in Scripture, God is not a bratty toddler. God is not like the gods of the nations. God is not like Zeus or Apollo. He doesn't lose his temper. God doesn't just snap and lose control. So we must Always, when we read about divine wrath and divine anger in the scriptures, we must always hold that. We must always have that at the, at the core of what we understand about God's anger. But what Heschel does is he goes too far in claiming that when God's anger comes forth, it can only do so if he suppresses his love and his mercy. But God cannot suppress his love and mercy because scripture tells us that God is love. But we have to understand that wrath flows from his love and from his mercy in response to human evil. But his point is still helpful in a way and it's I think one that's generally reflective of what we see in Scripture, but I think where it also fails is that it does not address the understanding that we have in that God's holiness, God's holiness, when it comes into contact with human sin, can have disastrous consequences as well as the actions that we do. This is why we have the rituals in the Old Testament while we have book after book, ritual after ritual, these are not just rituals that God gave because he likes ritual. And God does like ritual because we see it in Revelation. The church's worship in heaven that's ongoing we see is ritualistic. It's liturgical. Which is how we pattern our services. But... What those rituals were designed to do were to allow them to live safely in the presence of God so God could dwell among them. Because when absolute love and absolute goodness and absolute holiness comes into contact with sinful humanity, one has to give way and it's not going to be God. It has to be us. And coming into contact with God's holiness can be disastrous as we see in Scripture. So God sends Jesus to die to heal that. 
So his presence can not just be among us, but can also be in us. And I talk about all of this because of the reading, especially that we heard from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. I'm just going to read a few lines here from um, 53, just uh, two, uh, two verses here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. And this is an interesting lens one. And one I think we should use when you read texts like this. Because what's happening here in Isaiah isn't necessarily God punishing Jesus, right? But it's his divine love in action as Jesus, the suffering servant, undergoes the cross because he understands that what he is doing is he is offering himself to God as a ransom for our sin. As a ransom, Scripture uses this language to buy us back. That's what ransom is. It's to redeem something. And the way you redeem it is by paying. And Jesus does this because he knows what's on the other side of it. The servant, the righteous one. He is going to make many to be accounted righteous. And he does this by bearing our iniquities and bearing our sins. As St. Paul notes in Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He also says that the cross is an offense. I think he says it's... it's it's folly to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. The cross is offensive to everyone. But we must never fall into the trap of seeing the cross as a form of divine cosmic child abuse. Because the cross is the vehicle through which joy comes into the world. I was reading a devotional today and it was a selection from St. Cyril of Jerusalem around the, the mid-300s. And he talks about the cross is the tree of life. And that should make us think of, oh, the tree of life. That sounds like what we read in Genesis where God plants the tree of life in the garden. And then he removes humans from the garden after they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil so they will not eat the tr from the tree of life and live forever. But St. Cyril likens the cross to the tree of life. And he says, right, when, when you take the cross and you put it in the ground, 
He says, that's the tree of life. And he says, the, the tree of life is planted in the ground and it blesses the ground that once was cursed. Right? Because in Genesis, was it Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, God curses the serpent and says, on your belly you're going to go around and eat dust. And then he says to people, you are dust and to dust you shall return. So you have this imagery, right, of, of Satan slithering on the ground. It's not about how, you know, the snake, it's not an ace of fable, right, how the snake lost his legs and had to crawl on his belly. Satan crawling on his belly, eating dust, is a picture of him being the Lord of death, pursuing and trying to eat human beings who return to dust themselves. And then you have the imagery in the book of Numbers of the snake put on the pole out in the desert that those who looked upon it would be healed from their snake bite that was killing the camp. The cross is the tree of life. The tree of life through which the ground is blessed. And then as St. Cyril says, that way then the dead can be raised. And that's the hope that we carry with us tonight. He also said, and I quote, if Phineas, he's referring to a character in the Old Testament, when he waxed zealous and slew the evildoer, stopping the wrath of God, shall not Jesus, who slew not another, but gave himself up for a ransom, Put away the wrath which is against men. Let us then not be ashamed of the cross of our Savior, but rather let us glory in it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower, as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, ZionStoneUCC.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.